HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Maya Dallavalli. We'll talk to Maya about generational change, Napa, and of course, Dallavalli. We'll taste a Dallavalli Kalina for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Maya Dallavalli was born in Napa, Napa Valley grew up in a cult winery, and even had one of those cults named after her. Maya lost her dad at a young age, left town to study international relations, and eventually came back to Napa. But first she received two master degrees in wine, one from Cornell and one at Bordeaux AgroScience. Maya then put her boots on the ground, traveled and worked at some of the finest wineries around the world, including Petrus, Latour, and Ornelia. She returned home to her mom, Naoko, at their eponymous winery and oversees all wine growing and wine making at Dalla Valley Vineyards, along with her new project, DVO. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Maya. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be joining you this morning. Yep, looking forward to talking to you because big Napa fan and <laughs> an old drinker of your wine, so this is nice. Um, so we're talking to Maya remotely via our app Zencast. Maya, where Maya, where are you right now? Uh, I am in our winery. Okay, which is yeah. tell me exactly. So we're on the uh, east side of Napa Valley, up. Um, on the Vaca Mountain Range and right in Oakville, so right in the heart of Napa Valley. Okay. Um, a little down the road, I want to talk specifically, you know, about the plot of land you're on, you know, with everything that involves it, climate, soil, but we'll get to that later. All right. Okay. So 
help me with a little background and set up things for my listeners a little. Um, let's talk about the winery first because it existed before you. Um, it did so exist let, before me. <laughs> so let's set, set that up. Um, so your dad, Gustavo, was Italian and your mom, Naoko, was Japanese. Yes. So I'll remind you, forget, how did they meet? Um, how did wine become their life? I mean, did it precede them in any ways as something they found together? And how did they wind up in the eastern hills, eastern hillside of Oakville, you know, which is currently mm -hmm. where the vineyard is in Napa? So yeah. tell me how all that came together. So uh, my father originally was in the scuba diving business. So he co-founded a company called Scuba Pro, which is still in existence today. Um, but uh, he sold that company and was still living in the West Indies um, because he was very involved also in the diving industry. And my he met my mom um, on a business trip to Tokyo. And it was one of those, you know, love at first sight. And that's the end of the story kind of situation. So, um, they're living quick, in the West right? Indies. Yeah. Yeah. Very quick. Uh, I guess when you know, you know, so they were living in the West Indies and, uh, at a certain point, my mom wanted to have a family and it's not really the best place to do that. And at the same <laughs> time, they also, yeah, because if, I mean, if I, if, for me, it would have been great to be raised in the Caribbean, but you know, the mm. school, school, you have to fly out to go to school. You go to boarding school right. at a really young age. Logistically, it's, it's more challenging. So, um, they also had this opportunity to invest in a really a chateau type of business. And they had, were given two choices. Uh, one was New Orleans and the other was Napa Valley. So it's, it's pretty obvious which one they went for mm -hmm. and, uh, came to Napa Valley in 1982. Um, but without realizing that, uh, a majority of the Napa Valley is within what we call the agricultural preserve. And that was put in place in 1968, um, as a way to protect the beauty and nature of this valley from overdevelopment. Um, right. after seeing what happened in Silicon Valley and so forth. So uh, it was quite challenging then to find a perfect location to build that kind of business. But in the meantime, they had fallen in love with the area and you know, loved the, the beauty of it. And my father had some experience in wine, very basic, because my grandfather had a winery in Alto Aldige. And ah. so... Yeah, um, I don't know the name of it, and I don't know much about the winery, but uh, my father had some limited experience in that um, in that winery in Italy. Although I wouldn't say it was really transferable, so it was still kind of like starting from scratch when they decided right. to to go into the wine business. So they fell in love with this um, specific plot of land where our uh, vineyard and winery is now. Um, because of the view. So my father being Italian, he wanted to be on the hillside. He loved the beautiful view of the valley. If you ever get a chance to come up and see us, it's this big, expansive view of the Mayacamas and the valley floor. Um, so purchased it. Um, with that, there was about an acre or two of grapes planted. And um, 
they were being purchased by Camus. So Chuck Wagner came up and introduced himself and asked <laughs> if he could continue buying the grapes. And my dad, to my mom's um, shock and awe, said no. And then he said, no, I'm going to make wine instead. And so my mom was like, well, what do we know about winemaking? You know? So she always jokes like it was stepping on a banana peel and sliding into the wine industry. Uh, so pretty, pretty you know, good slide he, he, though. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, so, so, so they went out chalet and whatever that is, that's like hotels, right? Hospitality. Like, yeah, like a boutique hotel. They went out to do that. And did they mm-hmm. ultimately do that and then no. shifted towards wine? Were they no. running both? They never at the made same? it to that. Oh, they didn't. Okay. <laughs> no, Very they cool. gave up on that dream. Yeah. And so. your mom had no background or even no. interest in wine. She kind of she, took they, the, they enjoyed wine. They both right. were both wine appreciators and lovers, um, but uh, no formal training or experience in the industry. All right. So we're going to talk about, you know, early vintages and all that. But, but now mm-hmm. I want to talk about you for a minute. So you grew up on that property, on the vineyard, right? I did. I did. So tell me about, because you don't realize then what you know now. Tell me about growing up in the vineyard. You did lose your dad at a young age, right? Yeah, when I was eight years old. Tell me, you know, a little how that changed the life and even the wine thing. And I'm just curious, you know, were you one of those people who had a good relationship with her mom or, you know, good enough, but a little, you know, tell me how how that was. Because it was really you two. You were the nucleus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my mom and I have always been very, very close. And of course, after my dad passed away, it became even closer. Um, You know, I'm first generation American and we have no extended family uh, in the United States to speak of. So, yeah, so it was really just her and I. But, um, you know, she was also faced with this decision after my dad passed away if she would continue and take on the business and um, keep carrying it on or, you know, sell it and go back to Japan. But What year was that and how long? That was 1995. And how long was, you know, the vineyard around and how many vintages were you up to about then? So uh, the vineyards were planted in 82, and we had our first vintage in 86 of Cabernet. Sick. So almost it a was a, almost a decade at that point. And it was also a pivotal moment um, because at that time, um, the 92 vintage of Maya, which was just about to be released or was just getting rated, received a perfect score from uh, Bob Parker. And so that was very pivotal for us because my dad also knew, he learned about the rating just before, like a month before passing away. So he kind of knew, left us knowing that, you know, things were going to be okay. So she, my mom, yeah, she felt- So the timing was was great as far as the the Parker thing, not your dad. No, of course, of course. But uh, it was, the timing was kind of pivotal and- my mom realized, you know, we had a really good thing going. So she she had already fallen in love with, you know, growing grapes and making wine and the whole business and uh, felt a strong tie to the community here. So decided to really take on the business and really elevate it to the next level to take it to where it is today. Because it's really just been her for a long, long time until I came back. All right. So... I'm going to talk to you specifically about, you know, vineyard practices, cellar and mm-hmm. all that. But before we get to that, um, 
the winemaking, did your dad do it initially? I know your mom became a winemaker. I mean, who was making the, you had consultants, who was making the wine, you know, the first so, 10 years? Yeah, we always had a, like an in-house a winemaker. So our very first winemaker was Joe Cafaro, who was also the winemaker at Robertsinski in, in that right. era. And then after a few vintages, um, he just became too busy. So we hired um, Heidi Barrett, sure. who was with us through 95. And my father was always very involved in both aspects in the vineyard and in the cellar. But because right. he had no formal training, we definitely needed someone who had, you know, the background right. and guidance to make sure nothing got too, you know, awry. But, um, and my mom was always involved very much on the business. She was running the business side. But then after my dad passed away, she had to start overseeing everything, but then always made sure she put a really good team and invested in having a great team in place to guide the wines and vineyards along each year. Did she supervise that or she was pretty heavy handed in making the wine? I mean, beyond opinion, but. She, yeah, she was overseeing, I would say more than being, yeah, hands on. Um, so with all this going on around you, when did you realize that wine, you know, would be your path in life? I mean, I don't think it was as a little kid, even though you're running around the vineyards and, you know, I said you kind of left town, not even to study wine, but eventually, you know, did, when did, Mm -hmm. you, you know, when did that solidify? Uh, it really solidified when I left Napa Valley. Um, it was, <laughs> I think when you're surrounded by too much of a good thing, it's way too obvious. And you think, you know, it can't possibly, this can't possibly be it for me. Um, when in fact it really was. So it took me, you know, removing myself from the Napa Valley. Um, and I went to undergrad at University of Washington in Seattle to right. start to think about, A, what, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And B, um, how much I actually felt a lot of um, sentimental attachment to this property because it was something, you know, my parents started together and right. my father passed away. So I started to realize the importance and significance that this vineyard and winery had in my life. And so, so that's that was... when I started to pursue uh, a career in wine. Did you finish four years of college? I did. And did you take a job in, um, what was it, international relations? Or that's when you realized the wine thing and just started pursuing that? Yeah. Um, I So I graduated in 2009. So that was really in the midst of the recession. Right. So I had an interest in you know joining either foreign service or working for an NGO. And it just was not, the opportunities just weren't there. And um so I decided, yeah, I mean, what can you always do is work harvest um, because it, you know, it happens every year and good times are bad. There's always wine to be made and consumed. So um, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work at Nyers Vineyard. So Bruce and Barbara Nyers are sure. like my extended family. Um, they've been a really big part of my life and uh, gave me the opportunity to work in their winery. And that's when it really clicked for me. That, you know, specifically not only just wine. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Tadeo, the winemaker there is, uh, it took, you know, a lot of time to explain to me everything and show the different vineyard sites and soil, learn about soils and, uh, winemaking and 
you know, all the above, every, every step along right. the way. And I just was it fascinated kinda, with every aspect. It roped you in. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you a couple of questions that kind of set up to what you're doing and where you're going. But I kind of, we talked about it a teeny bit. Can you discuss how you understood the wines your parents made when they started the winery? I mean, what was their vision? What was the type of wine? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I, I know that, you know, in a sense, you guys are red wine specialists. And, and then you brought up Parker. And I, I want to know if the presence of Parker um, had any effect on the wines they made. You know, if they kind of changed to, you know, appeal to him or that's the wines they were making. So what did they set out to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, like I mentioned before, they're both, you know, great wine appreciators and um, drink a lot, predominantly old world wines um, at in their earlier times. But for them, they really set out and set a vision from the beginning, which I think has been a big factor in our success is making, you know, terroir driven fine wines and making the goal was to make a great wine of the world. And so in order to do that, you know, you can't cut corners, you have to make sacrifices and really keep that vision aligned with your team. So, um, and even with, yeah, Parker, it wasn't, we were always very true to, um, what the, the vineyard site drove every year in each vintage. Um, and if, there was, you know, different winemakers over the years. And of course there's a natural evolution in the style of wines. Uh, right. it would be strange for it not to evolve, but it was never meant as to be a wine to appeal to one critic. So it wasn't that we were always even rewarded for, uh, what we were doing. Um, but we were always, we can always say like, we were very true to the vision of making a great wine, no matter what, even right. if it meant not always being able to appeal to the the masses. Well, when you alluded to old world, you know, that your parents admired those, was that more Bordeaux than Burgundy, more Burgundy than Bordeaux? Was it Italians? I mean, what do you think it was? Uh, it was, I mean, I grew up trying, being able to try and taste a number of different wines and it was all, all the above. It was Italian, okay. you know, Barolos okay. or Tuscan wines. Burgundy, a lot of those Bordeaux. have a hand in influence, you know, of the type of wines that you're making. Um, so your market was guys like me, you know, middle-aged collectors, you know, who had a little yeah. money, you know, were informed like these guys were happening or these guys are getting ratings. But guys like me were starting to get older. Um, have you seen a shift in the consumer? Have you made an effort? You know, is that the market you still have to play to? They buy most of it. I mean, where is that going? Because, you know, you're generationally, you know, next up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a mix. Actually, you know, I, I, I have to say more and more, uh, of our customers are younger in age or signing up and are becoming more interested in our wines. Um, because we have, you know, wine in three different, three wines in three different price points. So it gives a greater accessibility, um, versus if you're just making, you know, one really expensive wine. Right. And, uh, of course, yeah, we still have, are, you know, the core 
of our consumers are older and they are getting older. But I see, I'm pleasantly surprised to see more younger consumers interested in our wines because there's more, they have more disposable income now. Um, they also are taking more of an interest in wine and then also not just in wine, but you know, how the wine is made and the more story. conscientious of this. Yeah. And you know, if, how, if it's sustainable, is it organic? Do you, all right. So let, let's care? talk about that. Let's okay. talk about that. Okay. All right. Cause I think, you know, you're doing good things that way. You know, as I mentioned, you're a second generation winemaker, um, and you said that as different winemakers came in, you know, obviously everyone had a vision and that would, you know, have an effect on, you know, vintages and where the wines were going. That's, mm -hmm. that's in your lap now. So yeah. I'm sure you have your own vision and ideas for the winery also with respect to, you know, what's been done and, you know, continues to be done. Tell me about the things that you're doing you just popped off a couple of them and things that you, you know, want to get done that maybe you're not there yet. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what comes to mind? Like, what are the things? I mean, I, I, I don't want to answer the question. I know them, but I want you to. So tell me some <laughs> of the things that you're doing. Um, yeah. Um, so after, unfortunately we had to replant the whole entire vineyard between 99 and 07, um, and it was a, due to a number of factors of virus disease and that just became mm. so insurmountable that we had no other choice but to replant and start over again. Um, and that was a very does, difficult wait, does that to change? Does that change the rootstock you plant or do you just plant the same stuff? Uh, we did make some adjustments in terms okay. of row orientation and rootstocks. Um, but the, the plant material itself, we work in a muscle selection. So we take our own cuttings rather than working with clones. Right. So genetically, it's all slightly different and gives more heterogeneity to the vineyard, which I think is advantageous um, against right. virus and disease. But right, So um, continue. You had to replant. Yeah. I had to replant. And then after we replanted, my mom decided to start forming organically in 2007. And that's been a, a huge um, change and impact on the quality, I would say, and health overall of the vineyard. So when I came back in 17, after being in Europe um, for three years, I had the opportunity to work and see um, and visit different estates that farm biodynamically. Right. And just thinking about, you know, for me, what's going to be my legacy and what am I going to do to carry things on to the next generation would be um, about not replanting again. Like how I see the value in old vines, I, you know, Europe, it's it's highly valuable and they don't even believe that vines do anything interesting until 20 years. So for me, I started thinking about, you know, what is it that I can do to really help guide this vineyard and keep it healthy for 50 years without having to replant it. And biodynamics seem like an obvious um, choice and something. So can you just clear something up for me? You yeah. know, I've read over and over that in Napa, you know, a lot of the vineyards are replanted. I mean, you had a specific reason, mm -hmm. but I think there's mm -hmm. like a shelf life for Napa. And I'm guessing because that's the way, um, the vineyards are treated, literally, you know, treated. 
What you're yeah. saying is by going organic and you're talking about eventually biodynamic, that is much better for the soil and the plant. And that gives you the opportunity for the plant to live a much longer life, which we both know older vines. Is that right. accurate? I, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, banks here depreciate vines after 20 years. So that's pretty, it gives you an insight about how yeah valued old vineyards are because the yields go down and uh, right. they're not as productive and they're older. But for us, we see the value and the quality going up. And we've actually, we're just starting the fourth season of farming biodynamically. And what we love about it is that you really start to look at the system as a whole. You don't look at an individual vine. You right. look at, you know, the ecosystem around it, the soil health and, you know, biodiversity. And how do you create um, a self-sustaining system and keep all the, you know, those factors of health in place? Um, because it is a monoculture. It's not like you can rotate crops every year. It's a right. one, one crop over and over, you know, for, for many, many years. So that's what I, I really um, appreciate about the philosophy of biodynamic farming is thinking about health beyond the vine. So is, so you're doing ram's horns and moon cycles and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so is it, I, I know you and I'll agree it's worth it, but is it hard, harder, or you just do no. it and it becomes part of the routine and that's that? Yeah, I mean, it puts you in the vineyard, you know, one additional time per month, I would say. Okay, and I think, worth it. you know, there's definitely no harm in that. Um, you need to have a team that's also open-minded and on board with it too, which is, um, we've been very fortunate, you know, everyone has embraced um, biodynamic farming in our team. So, and it's just like a way to bring people together and just, you know, bring a certain energy into into the space, which is, I think, pretty unique. So, I mean, in terms of difficulty, it's really not that difficult. Right, um, which is great. We're in a Mediterranean, yeah, we're in a Mediterranean climate. You know, we don't have huge pressure of mildew. Um, right. In in the area, that's not our that's not an right. issue. So, so to that point which is a good point because um, it ain't champagne and it ain't other regions, you know, that have a lot of moisture. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't get why more of the Valley isn't making the changes. Now you'll probably argue that they are, but do you think Napa as an area is committed to the things you're doing as deeply as you are? I think um, slowly the narrative is starting to change. I think, you know, to get a whole region on board on doing something is, you know, a lot. And for some people, it's more challenging financially or economically than for others. Um, right. But, you know, you can start and there is an initiative with the, there's a program called the Napa Green Program um, as a way to start having people in the Valley or having Napa Valley collectively start thinking about sustainability, climate changes, you know, in our right. face, it's, you know, undeniable. And what are the things that we can do to also encourage other farmers or growers or wineries to get on the same page? Cause I think the writing's on the wall, you know, if we don't do any, change or ignore the, the changes in front of us, it's only going to get worse. So I think, 
I, I think the attitudes, especially, you know, I would say in my generation with my colleagues in the Valley are all pretty much on the same page in terms of sustainability and moving away from using harmful pesticides and herbicides and trying to take at least, you know, one step away from it. All right. So that that's at least way. happening. Cause you yeah. know, I was going to say you're very diplomatic and even call a little BS <laughs> on you because you are the one who accurately stated you're in a Mediterranean client climate, which yeah. doesn't necessarily call for this stuff. So why were people doing it anyway, you know, for bigger output, you know, make their life easier. I mean, you're sure. right. I mean, er, financially could be a hardship, but everyone, you know, should take a step and, you know, kudos well, yeah. to you for doing it, going all in and, you know, your winery is so influential, hopefully that it'll, you know, um, encourage other people, um, to do yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a dogmatic person, right? So right. what I believe in, you know, it's kind of leading by example. I'm not going to go around to like someone whose livelihood is, is their five acre or 10 acre vineyard and tell them, you need to farm the way I do because it costs a lot more. And maybe at the end of the day, they still can't sell their grapes for a price that would, you know, economically affect that or reflect, right. you know, the, the quality of farming they're doing. I would say, yeah, go straight to, I would, but on the other hand, going to like a big corporate group who can certainly afford to farm right. organically. Yeah. Then you can put the pressure on. Absolutely. So it's just, tell yeah. Case by case. Yeah. I agree with that. And mm -hmm. in the end, that's the right way to approach it. Um, right. Do what you know is right and lead by example. So you're talking about, what'd you say, four vintages of biodynamic farming? Did you say? Yes. Yeah, we're so just starting the can fourth you, season. Can you sit there with the four vintages and tell me if you could, you know, notice differences or the effects on the wine? Is it subtle? Is it obvious? What is it? So, I mean, they say it takes two to three years to really begin okay. seeing a difference. I'm a okay. pretty, I also, uh, I'm pretty thorough and I like, you know, data and numbers and science too, to kind of help verify things. So I would say the so the fourth season we're starting, we haven't made the wine yet, obviously. We're just starting bud break. But okay. for the other three, there are three very um, different vintages, 19, 20, and 21. So I, I would feel more comfortable to say in five to seven vintages right. from now, be able to make a more um, accurate description of, of how biodynamic farming has changed the wine. I can already tell you that vineyard-wise, we start to see things um, in the vineyard that they're able to withstand more heat. Uh, they hold uh, water better. They, you're starting to see, uh, a change in the vineyard, but I would be more comfortable to make commentary about the wines having, you know, go a few vintages down. Cause you don't know what's vintage effect and what is effective right. biodynamic farming. Right. So you're, you're meticulous about, um, Growing grapes. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if it was your mom or somebody, but somebody said there's a difference between wine growing and grape growing, right? Yes. That was uh, Tony Soder who said that. Oh, it was Tony Soder? And Tony had yeah. worked with you guys, you know, in the old we had, days? Yeah. Or something? yeah so what, what is Soder the difference? Yeah, Tony Soder and Mia Klein worked with us. Um, so he was the one who really put this idea into my mom's head and to have her understand the importance 
of grape growing, but changing it to thinking about wine growing. So you're growing grapes to make fine wine, not just growing grapes to hit a certain yield, you know, to have a certain bricks. It's all about how is it going to impact for the wine. So um, that's why, you know, for us, we do all our farming in-house. We don't contract it out. And that really allows us to have the precision and detail um, in the day-to-day farming. You have a guy that's been with you for many years that lives on the property, right? Yes, Edgar. Edgar is our vineyard manager. He's right. been with us So that's since in-house, as you said. Yeah. 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 So Which he supervises very- our crew of seven, uh, seven guys. Very, very cool. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to me. We got to take a break soon, but talk to me okay. about seller practices because, like I said, you're meticulous in the field. Mm-hmm. In the cellar, are we similar? Are we low interventionists? You know, what are we doing down there? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the nice part of having, being able to, you know, farm at such a high level is that you have a great ingredients to work with. So it's more about, you know, guiding it and not screwing it up in a sense. Right. Um, so it's pretty, yeah, we, I would say we're pretty minimal interventionalists, um, but of course, if there is a problem, we will always, you know, step in. But it's more about guiding along the fermentations and allowing each vintage to really express itself. When you say if there's a problem, you'll step in. I mean, year in, year out, do you run into problems or just every now and then? It's pretty rare. And that's the other thing oh, that's good. been interesting. Yeah, with the biodynamic farming is, you know, uh, since we started and since we've been pushing more towards using um, our own yeast, native yeast and indigenous yeast, um, we've seen had zero issues with fermentations. They've all gone really smoothly. So right. um, it's been, yeah, very beneficial in that way. Now, we talked about this a little earlier. And, you know, tell me about you. You know, now that you're the person focusing on pretty much everything, is there any shift in the style? You know, when I talk to you about vision, is it stay the course? Is restraint a word you think about? Are there changes that you feel you want to do? I mean, the, the biodynamic thing is huge, you know, mm-hmm. staying sort of low intervention. But is there anything else, you know, that you want to do winemaking stylistically, field and cellar? Um, for me, I mean, of course it's naturally with each, like we said before, you know, with each person who takes over and is guiding the wines each year and making them, it's going to be inevitably different. That's natural progression. Um, So now it's Andy Erickson still? No, it's me. <laughs> it's, oh, right, right. What am I saying? Yeah. It, it, it shifted from yeah. Andy to you. Do yeah. you still Andy's work with... Still, I st- Andy still um, consults with us, so... Right. Um, it's been, yeah, it's... For me, it's... I really appreciate having um, his opinion and guidance as well. Right. Um, so I, I deviated from the question. So is there mm-hmm. anything that you feel stylistically, you know, that you're doing or you want to change? Um, I think, yeah, slowly, it's not so much, you know, that I want to put my handprint. Yeah. I don't see it as that, but I I see more as what's best for the wine. 
Right. So I think um, there's been a little small changes, you know, in barrel selection. I started working with Amphora um, as a way to add more complexity to the wines without adding more oak impact. Uh, did yeah, you I limit, mean, definitely. Did you sorry. limit the Amphora to, you know, just Colina or kept it away from Maya or doing it with the regular, you know, how are you using something like Amphora? I mean, like with anything in family business, you have to do the slow infiltration, not the shock factor. So I started with, uh, yeah, one Cabernet and one um, Cab Franc lot. And in 18, that went, the Cabernet went into the, uh, to our estate cab. And then 19, the two M4 went into the cab. And then for 20, actually, there's one that made it, that went into Maya. Do you I like just kept the result- every year putting a little bit higher. Do you like the results it. so far? Really happy with the results. Yeah. So it's something yeah. that you'll continue to work with. Yes. Yeah. We have now three per vintage. So yeah, it's been it's been very successful for us. That's significant. Um so those are some changes and tweaks that definitely have an effect. Anything else? I mean, I would say it's a you know, I like pushing things a little bit earlier um, uh-huh. than other generations of winemakers. So slowly each year kind of dialing back the pick dates. Um, also now because we have fire season in addition to the four right. seasons, there's less incentive or reward and the risk of waiting. Um, so it's, uh, and I, you know, it's not like I just, take out an earlier break that we just find, you know, times where we find that the grapes are ready at a lower bricks. Um, and that's, you know, advantageous to. So I don't want to talk about like bigger wines, unctuous picking later or more restrained wines picking earlier, but that when you pick, you're moving away from what you've done sort of has an effect on the wine and it gets you closer to the type of wines you want to make. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Nice. Um, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Maya Della Valley from uh, Della Valley vineyards. When we come back, I want Maya to just talk a little about, you know, where the vineyards are. I want to talk about, you know, the wines that we've kind of led up to, Um, And then I want to talk to you about something exciting, which is your DVO project. And I also have to subject you to our wine list. And you were kind (laughs) enough. And I heard it wasn't easy because Jersey as a wine state sucks. (laughs) Um, You sent me some wine to taste. So we're talking to Maya Dalla Valley. You're listening to the Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect, while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. 
Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th. And again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Maya Dallavalli. Maya is in charge of wine growing and winemaking at her eponymous family winery, Dallavalli Vineyards. Um, I want to talk to you quickly. I don't want to take a lot of time, but when you described earlier that, you know, the plot of land is in this high spot and it overlooks the valley. I mean, that alone is a great picture. But quickly tell me about, so you're farming on what type of soil? Is is the soil fairly similar throughout the plots? Um, does that little elevation, you know, have an effect on the climate? Do you face a certain way exposure-wise? You know, then I want to talk to you about the grapes. You know, you're basically working with red grapes. So give me a quick primer on that. Mm-hmm. So um, elevation-wise, we're at the top of this bench, 500 feet above the valley floor. So a really hillside profile of fruit. Um it is a western facing slope, so we get long hours of sunlight, um, but it's mitigated by the marine influence we get from the San Pablo Bay. So every day in the afternoon, we get a nice breeze that flows through. And soil wise, um, the land was formed about four million years ago as a result of a landslide that came um, from the top of Pritchard Hill down through where we are down to the uh, valley floor. And so the soils are this very red, iron-rich, rocky soil. The rock wow. in particular is the andesitic basalt. And it actually even varies within our 20-acre vineyard. So you have, um, you know, on the farther east side of the property, this deeper, redder, um, kind of friendlier soils, I would say, that makes wines that are fresh in acidity and uh, really linear. And then on the face of the slope on the west side, it's extremely rocky. We always have rocks <laughs> resurfacing in this every year. Right. Um, so my mom jokes that we grow rocks and then we grow grapes because sometimes it really feels like that. <laughs> um, That's funny. Yeah, and it's a mix of clay and loam depending on where you are in the vineyard. Right, which makes a very uh, distinct wine. Um, yeah. Let's talk about grapes. Um, like I said, you're really a red wine specialist. I would say Cabernet Sauvignon is the wheelhouse. But I'm curious, you know, there's five Bordeaux blending varietals. I'm curious why, I guess, your parents settled on Cab Franc. Mm-hmm. Um, as the primary second blending or as the secondary blending grape. Um, so tell me about, you know, the, the grapes, because most of the wines are composed of those grapes. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, in the beginning, it was certainly trial and error. Um, we had Merlot in the beginning. That was the first grape to go. Um, it was just way far too warm here. 
right. for Merlot. And uh, we had Cabernet Sauvignon and then Cabernet Franc was recommended to us to, to plant. And it did exceedingly well from the beginning. Um, and so when my mom did replant, she decided to add more Cabernet Franc because we did, um, we love working with it so much. So about 30% of the vineyard is planted to Cab Franc today, in addition to a, a half acre of Petit Verdot. So those are the three, work with three out of the five Bordeaux varietals. But right. I mean, Cabernet in the 80s, that was Cabernet is king and still is king today. So that was an obvious choice to plant. Um, but yeah, the Cabernet Franc came um, recommended to my parents to start out with. And it just, from the beginning was, like I mentioned, was did so well and we decided to keep it going. Right. So you have this gorgeous vineyard, you said 20 acres, this red volcanic soil, predominantly Cab Sauvignon, Cab Franc next, and then some Petit Verdot. So let's mm-hmm. quickly go down the list of wines from top to bottom. Maya, which was named after you, is really the premier cuvee of the winery, would you say? Yes. Yes. And that's that, our special tell me cuvee. about the blend there. Um, so when they first, the first vintage was 88 and they decided to do something unique, which was to make it a red blend and not a Cabernet Sauvignon. So the base is always Maya's Cabernet Sauvignon, which is our best block of Cabernet and okay. it's blended. They decided to blend it with a high percentage of Cab Franc. So it was 55, 45 Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, um, which now it's, it's changed a little bit uh, as we changed the way that we blend, but uh, still always the base is Maya's cab and it's still, you know, 30 right, to right. 40% more now of Cab Franc. And that's the Maya block, which year in, year out, the grapes are pulled from there. Yes. Then you make, we'll get to the wine you don't make every year, but then you make a, a state Cabernet Sauvignon. Yes. Um, yes. I would assume vintage and blending, you know, because of vintage blending and everything varies. Uh, it does, but yeah, we have, I mean, there are the base blocks though that now become very distinct each year for, um, the Cabernet and that too, we like to put a little bit of the Cab Franc and sometimes the Petit Verdot makes it in as well. To the okay. Yeah. Um, but would you say very high percentage of Cab Sauv in that? Oh yeah. It's always, you know, about 75, 90s. 80%. Never 90%, actually. I think most is 85 Oh, okay. All right. So that's a nice... So the aromatics Mm -hmm. and all the other nuances of those grapes participate. And then you make Kalina, which is a little more accessible price-wise. When did you first start making that? Uh, So my mom created that wine in 2007 um, after we had finished replanting the vineyard. And uh, that was because we had, obviously, a lot of young vines. And uh, while most were coming back uh, online that were suitable for the Cabernet or for Maya, um, there was others that were making very fruit-forward and fresh wines, but uh, kind of lacking the depth and structure, I would say, for more serious wines. So she decided to create Colina, which means hill, and our right. last name means of the valley. So it means hill of the valley, which we sit on. And uh, it's always been a red blend. So because especially now, um, the vines are back in full swing and with some age. So it's now just comes down to the assembly of the blend that we create um, to make Kalina in the same style that is still fresh and approachable. And it's a great 
introduction to our brand because it is a lower price point, but the farming is the same and the winemaking is the same. So as Bordeaux does, a second wine, that's kind of your second wine, right? All right. And then you do a wine that you don't necessarily bottle every year, MDV. Am I right about that? Yeah. So that's doesn't that doesn't MDV stink of Maya Della Valley's initials? Yeah, I know. I mean, you I, didn't have I, enough of this. <laughs> I that's what I said to my mom. I was like, okay, so now my first name, my last name, and my initials are all <laughs> online. I mean, enough. <laughs> yeah, really. But yeah, uh, the MDV is a um, we but we don't produce every year, and that's only available through our mailing list. Um, and that's just uh, a barrel selection of Maya's Cabernet. So that's 100% cab. And we make so, we all bottle like three or four barrels of it. So if you look at the past 10 years, how many MDVs did you make? Ballpark. We've made mm-hmm. three vintages. Okay. So it's, it's yeah. fairly infrequent. Um, yeah. All right. So that, am I missing anything on the Dalla Valley lineup? Uh, no, you covered it all. All right. So let's... We're running out of time, but we have time. Remember I told you we want to do the wine list and we want to taste some wine and talk about it. But I think this is very exciting, and I love the people um, that you're working with. You have a project called um, DVO. I'm guessing Mm -hmm. that's Dalla Valley Ornalaya. That is correct. Okay. So it's a new project of yours with Ornalaya, which like your wine is considered, you know, one of the more uh, highly regarded wines in the world, you know, consistent, Mm -hmm. terrific sought after. Um, Axel Hines has been their winemaker. You're also working with their CEO, Giovanni. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me, I mentioned in the intro that you did you know, work at Ornalaya. So I'm guessing you met these people. But tell me how the project came about and the wine that you're making. Yeah, so um, Ornalaya actually used to be partially owned by the Mondavi family. So there was a tie to Napa beforehand. Yeah, before. So my my mom actually had gotten to know the team um, when they would come to, to Napa and was very friendly with them. And uh, Axel would also come every other year. We used to host an international Cabernet symposium through the Oakville wine growers. Um, so Cabernet producers from all over the world would come for the symposium. So he also had, you know, this affinity and curiosity about Napa. And then, of course, I went to work for him in 2013. Um, I had a great experience. I learned a lot from him. And we kept in touch. And uh, I actually caught... Con- Coincidentally, ended up going to um, the same graduate school in Bordeaux that he had gone to. Ah, um, Agro yeah, Science. So, it's called Bordeaux. Yeah, Bordeaux Science Agro. Uh, it used, yeah, it used to be called Inita, but anyway, I don't know why they changed the name, but that's another story. Right. And so he became my mentor um, for my thesis and project and it just kind of came about naturally in conversation you know this is curiosity make wine and not but like what if we made wine together and uh at first i was you know thinking well when was I that, like when was that seed planted yeah <laughs> that was, was that? in uh 2015 okay so a couple of years we after we started talking about it. it yeah and and like yeah. you just said you'd rather be doing it in italy but he wanted to do it here all right so yeah go ahead. which was fun i mean it's been a lot of fun as well because it allows, it's opened my eyes to a lot of other 
areas of the Napa Valley, which I was not familiar with and discovering, you know, these new sites and soils and microclimates is um, just like, you know, in the span of half hour drive away is pretty impressive. So uh, yeah, we started researching and selecting sites together. And obviously now um, I do the day-to-day being here in Napa, but Axel right. normally is coming about three times a year um, and tasting the wines and looking at the vineyards together. So it's very much made in a collaborative way. So the first, um, the first official release is the 2018, uh, which you is made that about in 400 the market cases now? of. It, uh, it is. We did a, a release. How many cases the, did you say? Winter. 400. Okay, that's small. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's, um, I, I kind of know the answer, but I need you to walk me through this. What's okay. the difference between Dalla Valley and DVO? The only thing I could come up with is sites you know maybe you shifted towards a little cooler areas which may have an effect mm-hmm. on the type of grape which if you're right. picking early you told me earlier maybe these cooler sites play into your you know taste palette what's the difference i mean the difference is it's made in a very collaborative way so the way the okay. way we make those wines and those lots are very different than how we work with our fruit you know the tannin profile and extraction is completely different the fermentations are treated in a different way. Um, barrel selection is different um, because Axel and I work very closely on doing those, making those decisions together. So almost every element is different, you know, from barrel. Yeah, it to, is, and that know, was the point. Profile, you know? yeah. yeah, right. We wanted to make something distinctly different from Dalavali and Ornelia, but something that still reflects, you know, both of our individual know-hows and what we do at our own respective estates and then combine it together to make something new um, together. So I'll probably ask you this at the end too, but DVO limited, limited uh, amount of wine made. Mm -hmm. Um, How is it available? Is it mailing list? Is there some retail? You know, people go, go, Maya Dalla Valley, Naoko Dalla Valley, Axel Hines. Like, how do I get my hands on that? Right, right. Although it's not um, your mom, it's you, but you're your mom's kid. Yeah, whatever. but she's still, yeah, she's still, she still is uh, very involved as well, um, more from a periphery standpoint. But uh, we sell uh, in New York and California, your distributor, and then we um, are have a mailing list. So we have a website, dvowine.com, where okay. people can sign up for the mailing list and then receive the the 19 allocation, which will come out in the fall. Okay. We'll remind people at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. All right. I need to shift to a thing called the wine list. We do this thing called the wine list. We ask all our guests five questions. We ask everyone the same five questions. We've been doing this for over 200 guests. You're not escaping from it. <laughs> I want you to be spontaneous. Let's not spend a ton of time because I want to spend a few minutes tasting the Kalina with you. So, and I will post these answers on our websites, you know, when we promote the show. What is Maya drinking now? What's in your fridge? What are you curious about, you know, besides your wines? What's interesting you? Um, so what's actually in my fridge right now um, are a few wines that were made by uh, an old intern of ours who's now the assistant winemaker to Graham McDonald. His name's Reed Griggs, and uh, it's a new wine that he's going to release, I believe, this year. 
uh, called Tidings. It's a, so there's a Santa Barbara Syrah. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And then Tidings, T-I-D, T-I-D-I. Yes. Yeah. So Syrah and a Cab Sauve. And what's his name again? His name is Reed Griggs. Okay. Um, let's look out for him. Um, anything else? Um, there's always, well, I always joke it takes um, a lot of beer to make good wine. So sometimes at the end of the day, right, having I, I, I ice cold be- beer. I yeah. take beer as an answer. We're going to stop there. All right. Second question. Okay. Maya D's, DV's favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you think is a good one, but what what do you like? And it's obviously something you don't eat every night, every week. But what's that? Ah, uh, you know, you got this food in front of you on the wine and you go, this is just good. So what this is going to sound really basic, but I love... Wait, 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 wait. Boy, you're, you're not allowed to say wine and uh, uh, champagne and oysters, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I was mean, that I was it? Say, no, I was going to okay. say champagne and popcorn. Okay. I love that. I mean, not the yeah. first time, but not common, but one of the great ones. You know, champagne and salty. Snack, so. yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, you know what ain't bad either? Champagne potato chips and caviar oh uh, yeah now that's what my were you saying you and your boyfriend <laughs> what about this oh yeah that's our favorite snack is uh popcorn so you guys are very fancy um yeah <laughs> all right third question now i'm sure you're pretty busy but you're you know you're young and you get around and all that um do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And when I ask you that, I'm not asking you to rank them or, you know, this is your only place. Just what comes to mind, you know, as a good place that you walk into, the wine list is cool, the people are knowledgeable, the vibe in the place is nice. You could do Napa in your travels. You could throw something out at me. Does anything come to mind? And if you mention something, like I said, if somebody comes up to you and says, why didn't you mention me? The answer was he didn't ask me my favorite. He just asked me some places that I think are cool. So what do you, what, how do you answer that? Uh, well, one of my favorite wine bars in uh, Bordeaux when I was living there is called, uh, so it's like from the, you have to spell that for me. Cause I post it. Okay. It's right now. Yes. It's a A U X. Okay. And then, uh, you can just do the number four. Okay. And then coins uh, spelled like coins, plural. Right, right. And then do uh, du. Right. And then van vin. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, anything yeah. else stateside? Stateside, uh, I love Valley Bar and Bottle in Sonoma. Okay. Nice to hear you pick a Sonoma place over Napa. <laughs> um, all right, we'll leave it at those two. Fourth question. Okay. Favorite all-time wine. When I started the show many years ago, I asked the question, fishing for an answer about what was the most expensive, rare, famous wine you ever tasted. I don't give a crap about that anymore. I care about a wine in your lifetime that's a favorite, that had an impact on how you view wine, that changed your thinking, that was a gateway. Is there any wine or two that has done that to you? I would say um, from a white wine um, 
Silex, when it was made by Didier Dagano, was a life-changing wine for me because I never had a Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, All right, so it's a Dagonio Sauv Blanc. What year are we talking mm-hmm. around? Uh, ooh, year that I, I believe it was 06. Ballpark. When? 06? Yeah. 06. Okay, so when you had that, it just it got you thinking. Yeah, yeah. Funny, you're a so red winemaker that was influenced by a white wine. I like that. I guess, you know, grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. Um, yeah. All right, last question, and this is going to be a hard question, but too bad. Um, So the question is, we ask all our guests to recommend the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. We ask them to recommend a white or a red. You could recommend categories like Muscadet is a terrific white wine that's cheap. Um, And I would set this up by saying a couple things. You are a red wine specialist. You are a premium winemaker. You are in Napa Valley. So tough tooties to you for answering this. But if you had to recommend to my kids who are like in their 20s or whatever, where they Mm -hmm. can't bring crappy supermarket wine to a party or as a gift, but they don't have 40, 50 bucks, what are some cool wines that you can imagine you know, that wow in that 15, 20, 22 price range. Can can you think of anything or did I stump the crap out of you? I would say anything with a Kermit Lynch back label in that price point, you can't go wrong. So anything that's a that great Kermit answer. <laughs> that's a great answer. Is that okay? <laughs> no, that's a great answer because, you know, he's been around a long time and he's curated great wines and he has wines yeah. in those price range. And it goes back to the old argument that if you find a wine store or a distributor that meets your sensibilities, then they have the stuff that you want. And Kermit Lynch mm-hmm. is that. Now, yeah. just to break that down a little. Are there any types of wines in there, like Beaujolais or? Yeah, I mean, Beaujolais, know. yeah, is always a hit. Is there even Beaujolais at that price point anymore? I feel like I love well, Beaujolais. I feel like it it, it more, used more to be. Expensive. You could probably get it for twenty five bucks for the village. And yeah. Um, yeah. What about like a cheap, not cheap, an inexpensive white? I would say. I mean, yeah, Muscadet is always or a Picul okay. is always. So decent. we agree on that, yeah. and Kermit has some yeah. good. Uh, um, that's that's a good answer. Very skillful, coy answer. I like that. You should <laughs> be able to give me an answer like that with two master's degrees. So kudos to you. Yeah, I know. A lot of expensive pieces of paper. <laughs> that's right. All right. We got to wrap the show up. But before we wrap up, we do a thing called the weekly wine sip. And I put you out of your comfort zone and made you send me wine. So you and I are going to taste and evaluate on air um, the... 2019 Colina Dalla Valley, which we talked a little about. Um, mm-hmm. What more can you tell me about this wine that we didn't discuss? You know, particular vintage, blending, whatever. Uh, well, 19 ha- does have one of the Amphora aged lots in it. So okay. it's a, a Cabernet Franc aged uh, Amphora. So it makes up less than 5% of the blend. Um, so what, it's the Franc or the Amphora? The Amphora. It's about okay. 40% Cabernet Franc um, in the mm. blend. So it's 50% Cabernet Sauvignon, and then the remainder is Petit Verdot. So okay. it has all three of the grapes that we produce. 19 is a, 
a great vintage, um, a pretty rainy spring. Um, that was probably one of the rare years we actually had any kind of mildew pressure, but very really? easy to mitigate. Yeah. Right. Um, because we had pretty late rains in the spring, but and a and a warm summer to offset that, and very dry afterwards. So, so uh, overall. Overall, a good vintage nineteen or trying or a great okay. vintage, yeah. Great vintage. No, okay. it's a great vintage. So that's yeah. a nineteen I mean, is a buy. It's definitely a buy. I mean, every vintage is a buy, but you know we have let more consistency vintage to vintage in, in the Napa Valley um, just right. due to due to the climate. But I love the nineteens. They're you know very fruit forward. They're fresh. They're approachable. They're I would say more charming than the the eighteens. The eighteens are a little bit more broody and austere takes a little bit more time to understand. Um, so wait, so to those it, descriptors, we're mm-hmm. not talking just about Kalina. We're talking about the vintage or Kalina. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. All right. So everything you described falls into that 19. All right. Vintage. So what I want to do is I want to throw a little of this juice over my tongue and I want to talk to you about okay. it. All right. Okay. So first, before we do that, let's look at the color. You know, uh, typically I would think that it's got that dark, you know, brooding purple, you know, fairly mm-hmm. dark edges, even though it lightens up. Agree? Yes, agreed. All right. Now, nose, I suck at descriptors. You're the one with the two masters. Let's put this up to our schnoz. Give it a sniff. And tell me your descriptors on this particular wine and vintage. Um. So the 19 Kalina on the nose, Um. It's, I mean, like I mentioned before, it's very fruit forward. So you get a lot of red fruits. I get um, mostly red, even yeah, though it's this yeah. dark, you know, wine, it leans more red than dark fruits. I agree there. Go ahead. Yeah. So it's a little bit more playful on the nose than I would say the, the Cabernet and the Meyer are going to be a little bit denser. Okay. Play, playful uh, may be the first time we ever had that descriptor. Go ahead. Really? really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, All right. I so. Mean, Tasting what else? gets so boring. Got to, you know, spice it No, up. no, I love that. That's why I singled it out. All right, so definitely red fruits. I get yeah. florally, you know, some flower. Yeah, there's some floral tones there. And then, like, you can feel the influence of the Cabernet Franc with some of, like, the dried herbs on the back end as well. Right. Um, so question, when we talk Cab Franc, what mm-hmm. Cab Franc brings to the table blending wise would you say one of the first things is aromatics i think it brings a lot of aromatics what else uh it just adds for me it it creates a little bit more lightness in what Mm. can be a very tannic and and linear cabernet um it just broadens the wine when you which i love about your wines because you know these are big wines but it it kind of you know, does a nice thing for that. All right. So let's move to mouthfeel. We throw it back over the tongue. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say in a good way that it's unctuous, but it's a nice full mouthfeel, like a medium plus minimum. Yeah. I've, and that's the Petit Bordeaux playing with the mid palate. So yeah, Petit Bordeaux I mean, I, is it, great for blending to add a little bit of weight to the wine. It's a great... Uh, it's a great mouthfeel. It's mouth filling, but like I said, it's not like these some of these unctuous syrupy Bordeaux mm-hmm. or even Napa wines and all of that. All right, so let's move to the final thing, the palate. You're going to help me with this. Does the palate reflect a lot of the nose descriptors, and what other descriptions can you give me on the palate? Yeah, I think it, it matches a lot. Um, 
what red you berry. smell in the glass, red berry. But I think there's a little bit more spiciness too from the oak, um, yes. especially on the finish. Not oaky through. though. Not oaky, no. But that's you know when oak is done right, uh, it's meant to enhance the wine, not overpower it, right? So I think what I like is, about it's only sixty percent new. So that's great. What I like yeah. about it is you know when I take a taste in the mouth, I actually feel it go up my nose a little, you know, which is nice. Yeah, a little retro nasal action. Yeah, versus, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, smelling it and all that. Um, it's a beautiful wine and, you know, not to make any light of anything, it's your entry-level wine, but, I mean, it's right. as good as it's as good as anything. Um, what's, in your mind, perfect pairings for this kind of wine? Uh, that wine's pretty versatile, I would say, in terms of what you can pair with it. I mean, yeah, obvious, obvious choice. What a lot of people like to pair it with is red meat. Right. Um, but I think it, I think steak. it pairs with chicken, chicken too. You know, with some yep. kind of sauce on it, uh, can go perfectly well with also. Yeah, so um, it's pretty versatile. Um, yeah, I think it is versatile because it's not that over the top Napa Cab. It's got a lot right. of that, you know, character where you can put anything. Um, so do we like this wine? I like this wine. I'm very surprised because I wouldn't call it restrained, but it's far from this over the top. I love the blends. I love the Verdot and the Franc. Um, you're very happy with the way this wine came out? Yeah, I, we're happy. No complaints. Yeah, it's very good. So that's the 2019 Colina Dalla Valley. Um it's their Napa Valley red wine. We talked about the blend. All right, Maya, we have to wrap up. I want to get some info from you, but let me just do a quick wrap up. And then uh, I want to, just like I said, get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Actually, iTunes is now Apple Podcasts. Um, or wherever you get your pods Um, subscribe because when you wake up tomorrow morning and you put your earbuds on Maya will be in bed with you that won't happen if you don't subscribe so please subscribe Um, follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation on Instagram we're at S Ben Ruby on Twitter we're at Ben Ruby but you can get to both of those by using our hashtag the Grape Nation. Um, as I mentioned, we will post Maya's wine list. She gave us some great suggestions. And I will give you all the info on the weekly wine sip, which was the 19 Colina, um, on all our social media sites in the next week. Uh, Maya, fill in the blanks here. Where can we find you and your wines on social media and online? So if I am intrigued by this show and I want to get these wines, I'm going to guess you may have a waiting list, but where do I go? Yes. So you can sign up on our waiting list at dalavallevineyards.com. D-A-L-L-A-V-A-L-L-E.com. Yes. Um, vineyards, that, plural. Vineyards, uh-huh. vineyards with yeah. an S. And that'll bring you to the site and sign up and be patient. As we mentioned, the wine is available retail, retail online and at restaurants, right? Yes. And do you do social media on behalf of yourself and the winery? 
Yes, we have uh, Instagram pages for both myself and for the winery. So you are, which is yours? Mine is uh, Maya DV. Okay. At Maya DV. Um, yes. And then the winery, the vineyard? The winery is at Dalla Valley Vineyards. Okay. Um, so those would be fun to follow after hearing these shows. All right, Maya. I want to thank you very much. Thank you to our guest, Maya Dalla Valley. Um, thank you to our engineer, Kevin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.